Welcome to the Play Well for Life podcast. Join us as we discuss the lost art of parenting through play and how parents and grandparents can use games to build better relationships with their kids. For more information on how we can help, please visit playwellforlife.com. Welcome to another instalment of the Play Well for Life podcast. It is my absolute pleasure today to welcome Lindsay Pollard, founder and director of Little Box of Books, an inclusive children's book company. In a previous life, Lindsay was a TV director and an aid worker, and in her spare time, she likes to make Lego things with her children. So hi, Lindsay. It's so great to have you here. And um, I'm a massive fan of the work you're doing, so I can't wait to talk to you about it and share it with our listeners. So do you want to start by just telling me a little bit about your background and how it led you to come to set up Little Box of Books? Yes, thank you so much for having me. Hello. Um, yeah, we I set up Little Box of Books in 2018. I think it was uh, July 2018. It's hard to, it's hard to know where we are at the minute. <laughs> uh, before that, I'd been... I'd, I'd worked in TV and I'd travelled the world, made a lot of daytime exciting programmes and had a lovely old time. And then I'd um, moved into aid work, wanting to, I think it was some misguided notion about wanting to um, save the world after having entertained the world and then saving the world. Um, so travelled a lot with that and then um, had my son, who's now seven, which kind of brought my aid work to quite a quick stop. <laughs> um, and I was a quickly, quite quickly a single man with him. And it was when, I suppose that was the time when I first went back to children's books. So mm -hmm. it'd been 34 years since I'd looked at a children's book, you know, and, and um, I started to read them with him and suddenly realised that the world had moved on, but children's books hadn't. So um, I was I was looking for books that would have single parent families in them because he very he was he was weird he very quickly seemed to realize that um what we had wasn't normal in his eyes and I, I don't know where that came from he just very you know he would talk about normal families and he would talk about other families that weren't ours that you know fit with this idea that he had in his head isn't that weird from such mm. a young... um was he in nursery like did it come from that or just yeah. general media and culture around sort of promoting that I think it must have been like all of those things. I think we underestimate how many influences our kids have from a very young age. Um, and it's something we are, we try to be as aware of as possible. Um, all the little things that are planted in their heads from so many different places. And uh, I couldn't find any books with uh, single parent families in. I went to Waterstones in Piccadilly in London and said like, you know, do you have any books with single parent families? And they were, they were like, no, we don't index like that. Like there's, my mom is my single mom or my single mom the superhero but there's nothing where you know we wouldn't know if they're incidental to the storyline you'd have to read every single book because we've got no way of knowing that mm -hmm. and as I looked into it you know I'm white I'm middle class I've been represented in books and media since you know since I was born um but children's books were not represented are not representative racially culturally um, there's a very narrow view of what's normal and what makes a children's book so um, so that was, yeah, I very quickly realised that as I started to read children's books again and, and recognise that people would need a service to show the whole diversity of our population through books, which is where the idea came from. Mm, amazing. And I think it's a really interesting point. I remember being brought up 
on fairy tales from sort of Russia and other sort of Eastern, more Eastern European countries. And it was an intentional decision on my mum's part, because in those stories, the woman or the princess or the daughter was going off on her own adventure and, you know, meeting the witches. And there was no kissing print, you know, sitting in towers waiting to be kissed by a prince. And I remember like, as I got a bit older and I realised that no one else is so my cat is called Baba Yaga and um, everyone goes, who's Baba Yaga? And I'm like, what? You don't know Baba Yaga? And it always really surprised me that obviously as a young child, I didn't realise my mum had gone to great efforts to intentionally seek out books that had different types of narratives. And, and I do think that's had an impact on me and my peers, you know, who didn't have that potentially. And, and I think it, it's interesting for me to hear that, you know, 30 odd years later, still you have to go to great efforts, it sounds like, to find anything against the heteronormative narrative or the standard narrative. Well, and, and that's it. And, you know, I look back at my childhood and it was incredibly progressive of your man to be, to identify that and highlight it. Although the talk about diverse children's books has been going on for 50 years. So um, there's, there has been a campaign to change them for a very long time. But I grew up, I wasn't allowed to hear swearing in films at all but I was allowed to watch James Bond which which now I'm like I find that decision unusual because you know James like James Bond isn't going anywhere near my seven-year-old you know like my my boys will not be watching James Bond until they can understand that women aren't aren't just there as ornaments or you know women don't have to be beautiful before anything else you know and so much damn and I know that I I remember saying that I wanted to be a nurse when I was younger instead of a doctor because I didn't believe women could be doctors. Mm -hmm. And I grew up with this idea. And my mom is very strong, very feisty um, and and calls herself a feminist and and is very much, you know, she she strived for equality in the household. She was working. But for some reason, this influence was, you know, was just there. Like Mm -hmm. these what we watched on the TV, what we read in stories and, you know, like fairy tales were standard fair in our house. Um, and now I look back at, and I can see, I can just see the way it formed my brain, formed my mind. And, uh, you know, it's so important and I'm so strict. My poor seven-year-old and my two-year-old as well, like the list of what goes off so quickly in our house is like, is long, not without a conversation. We have a conversation about it, but you know, the chipmunks the other day, like one of them fancied his French teacher like this is a kid's show and he fancied his French teacher and stalked the life out of her. And I was just like, I'm not having you. This is not okay. This is not a storyline. You need to, you it, until you can question that and understand it and, and put it in context, you're not, it's not going to help. So yeah, I've been, I'm quite like firm about trying to keep them with minds as wide open as possible. Cause I, remember um, my friend telling me about I think it was the Barbie program and she was like I just it's so awful it's all about women being mean and stealing each other's boyfriends like aimed at sort of four-year-olds and I think it's it's so and I see it you know I talk about James Bond I remember the first time I sat in a James Bond movie thinking I'm actually a bit uncomfortable with this I'm not sure I like this and and I I see it's funny I went on a bit of a random nostalgic trip recently and was watching all these uh TV shows from the 90s like um Dawson's Creek and stuff like that and I was like and Ali McBeal it was very strange I'm not sure what was going on with me but um 
I remember thinking, do you know what? This, these seemed more progressive in many ways than the things I'm watching now on Netflix. You know, it feels like in many ways we've gone backwards and it's back to this, some of the stereotypes about the jokey flaky man who's the hero and the idol because he's good looking. And then, you know, the kind of uptight woman or just, you know, I just, I'm so much more aware of it. And I think it's really hard to see all the ways, as you're saying, that we're, we're conditioned unconsciously. And I love that idea that actually for you, it's about having a conversation with your child and talking about why it's not a great idea to watch something and developing that questioning mind and that curiosity. That's just, yeah, that sounds really, really great. How does, how do they respond your kids to that? Well, my eldest, uh, my two-year-old just, uh, you know, at the minute his brain is full of, I don't know what they think about all day, but things that make him angry anyway. Um, but uh, my seven-year-old definitely has grabbed the gender issue very strongly. And while he hates it at times, um, he does talk to me about it. So like I, I often get him to read some of the books that I'm going to uh, give to our subscribers and he'll come back and he'll be like, great, strong woman character, um, not brilliant for the boys who are all angry and or aggressive, you know, so he can come back and he knows what we're looking for in the books and, and he can translate that into his situation. So, I mean, who knows? Um, yeah, I'm the worst type of parent just going on saying, you know, have you thought about that? Why, you know, instead of letting him enjoy his, <laughs> enjoy the culture he's surrounded by and enjoy an art for art's sake. But I do hope to make him questioning because I think more more than ever before, our kids are surrounded by like media from all angles. You know, like there's there's four year olds just watching kids YouTube all the time, and then you know, and and they need to be discerning. And if they're not given the tools to be discerning, then we they are gonna grow up with the same stereotypes that we're trying desperately to remove. It, it, it limits them. It limits everybody. They're so. It makes me so sad to think that kids just get told there's one way to be a girl, one way to be a boy. If you're black, you're always the sidekick or you have to be funny. You know, there's these like really strong tropes that left unquestioned will just, you know, are just perpetuated. So, you know, mm -hmm. really it's, it's a really important thing to do. Yeah. And I think it's, it's that thing. It's recognizing that even if you are in the, in the majority group, it's problematic for everybody when there is yes. stereotypes and prejudice and actually all the evidence shows that diversity and diverse leads to diversity of thinking and that leads to better everything. Um, and I think, I think it's also really important what you're saying about actually just by developing that questioning of it, you start to see that it is culturally constructed. And that means our stereotypes and our culture are constructed and therefore are no better worse than another culture's constructed norms. They're just different. And it, I think it does start to allow that general risk. It can, it can lead to more respect and understanding of, of everybody and different cultures and different perspectives, which I think is really important when we're in a globalized world. Yeah. And, and I think, yeah. And it's, and it's definitely, you're right about it being for everybody because I think I've had a few people question uh, why, why I do what I do, especially because I think the conversation about race um, is probably uh, one of the most prominent ones about what we do. And uh, I get people surprised that a white woman's working in this field and, you know, we're very careful about how we speak in the platforms that we use and making sure that we're not taking the oxygen away from people who can speak about these, um, about race and culture from a lived experience. Mm. Um, but at the same time, like, 
my son goes to a school where he, at one point, I think he was one of three white kids in his class and the bookshelves did not reflect that. So he was being told over and over again, he was, you know, he was going, he's having lessons about being anti-racist. You know, all of the house leaders are, I mean, admittedly American black people, um, which is something that we're looking to change as well. But um, he was hearing all of these stories about being anti-racist, um, always standing up for people and understanding that uh, difference is, you know, something to be um, accepted, understood and celebrated, you know, like all of those things. And yet being sent back to bookshelves full of stories where black people are entirely absent, white boys, white, usually white boys are the ones having the adventures and, uh, you know, being the most important person in any story and and it just doesn't match up like you can't it's like role modeling isn't it you can't just tell people something you can't just say to them you know be anti-racist you know make sure that your whole life is about unlearning your, your privilege and your you know you can't say that and then send them back to bookshelves which are full of white kids going on adventures being the detectives or you know all of the different things and so it's incredibly important for all children to understand um, what society looks like and why we are in the situation we are and why, you know, we've got like a, the dominant white class, uh, white middle class being like the most important people in all of these positions, getting jobs, getting just privilege, isn't it? Mm. So interesting. Yeah, I mean, and th- and that is exactly that, isn't it? That talking about something has to be followed by meaningful behaviour and representation and action in in society so as you're saying the bookshelves need to match what the message is that's being given um and there's no Ofsted requirement at the moment if the the recent framework so you know Ofsted doing their school inspections and obviously that's all a bit um up in the air at the minute but like they released a new framework in last November I think and there's no requirement for diversity on the bookshelves there's no requirement for school to reflect the diversity of their school population on their bookshelves or the wider UK population, most importantly. Um, and so while there is a nod in that direction and, um, you know, extra marks to be given for people who are aware of and, and promote a, an atmosphere where diversity is accepted and celebrated, it's still not a requirement. And I think that's just a huge, huge blind spot for schools. Like the influence, you're teaching them straight away about prejudice and that that's got it that has to change yeah I remember I was part of a book group and I remember someone suggesting actually why don't we specifically read LGBTQ literature and it was really interesting to read to intentionally seek out books that represented LGBTQ characters first of all there were so many but why are they not in the mainstream you know was the first question and then just these, it, it really highlighted to me that unseen kind of prejudice, basically, that actually most books that are on most reading lists are representing heterosexual relationships. And it was just, it was just really opened my eyes. And I think that's what I'm hearing from you as well. It's actually when you start to think about this and look around, you can't then unsee how um, insidious that sort of non-conscious bias is everywhere in society so tell us tell us because I'm aware we're having a really interesting conversation and probably people are sitting there listening going yes but what is Little Box of Books tell us tell us about Little Box of Books and how it works so uh we um have 
so we, we there's two parts to what we do in it there is um a subscriber and gift boxes so every month um normal people everybody can choose to get a, a box of books for a not three four to seven or an eight to eleven year old or all of them if you want um and in those bo uh, boxes are two three or four books which reflect the diversity of our population so all characters not all of the characters in the books, but the um, the stories will uh, feature a diverse range of characters. So whether that's race, culture, family setup, um, sexuality, relationships, uh, all in these books, so that it's normalised. So that diversity is normalised to children. And then there's a few activities. So we there's a little activity pack in there and some free gifts. And um, it's posted every month if you're a subscriber, or you can get one-off gift boxes for birthdays, Christmas, whatever, christening. Uh, bomb expense, anything um and yeah it's it's all about just uh reflecting the diversity of our population in children's books and making sure so we, we do prioritize um black authors black illustrators uh, authors of color like we we try and get because as well i think it's really important that own voices are heard so mm. we do try and um and and make sure that like our diversity is right from like the making of the book the writing of the book you know um, to encourage children to see the world through different perspectives and different eyes and understand that their version of normal isn't the only one mm. you know I mean it's really simple stuff it's like we've got um we've got some books for five to eight year olds which are about Yasmin who her family are Muslims and um so her mom gets up in the morning and puts on a sari and that's Yasmin's normality and for an, for another kid who whose family aren't Muslims that's not their normality and they don't you know they might never have seen that or understood somebody celebrating Eid um or any of those things that just are just the differences between cultures and just having children understand them in ways that that aren't the ways that the media portray so mm -hmm. they have like you know, they understand about different cultures before you know and and it's the same for like we we um have characters with disabilities and it's it's having those conversations with children before you're in the supermarket pointing at someone asking you know asking awkward questions about why someone looks the way they look or you know it's preparing the way for having those conversations and recognizing that everybody's different and everybody you know like there's we're all we all make up normal and that's and that's what's really important so um yeah so they're in a book and so we've got the, the family side of it so that's where those little boxes come in and then we do schools as well um, so we do boxes of books, 10 books up to 110 books for schools, just boxes of diversity that reflect the population of the UK. And we've done last year, we raised £57,000 in a crowdfunder and donated 10,000 books to schools all over the country. So um, because our main mission is to make sure that all children have access to a diverse bookshelf. Mm, um, amazing. Such a fantastic company and such a fantastic idea um and I'm an, a massive book lover and an avid reader and my shelves are stuffed my house is generally a stuff full of books however I am aware that lots of people say oh books have had their day and things like that so tell us why you chose books as a medium I think I chose, well, I chose books as a medium because I don't think they'll ever have their day like I think we have to look at access to books and make sure that's um equal um, because obviously not all children have access to libraries of books at all, not, have not all children have parents who are big readers, but we do know that reading is the single biggest indicator of future academic success. So if a child is reading for pleasure, they are more likely to succeed right across the board in all subjects. So it's really important that all children read for pleasure. 
And with that, you have to give children, you know, the kind of books that they might read. And, and before we've always gendered them, you know, we said, oh, this is a boy book or this is a girl book. But actually, it's not that. It's about like just interesting characterization or seeing people who look a bit like your family or like understanding a situation and being drawn into the book and 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 non-fiction titles being available. So for that, while I concentrate at the moment on physical books and the, you know, the feeling of them and the smell of them and that, you know, like the whole world. The smell of books. Oh, yes. The smell of books. <laughs> you know, bookshops, you know exactly what I mean. Like it's, you know, that there's something, you know, I used to go to my local library from when I was um, about four or five, I think. And I used to take hordes of them home. And I remember how that felt going to the library. I loved it. Mm. Um, so we concentrate on physical books but you know uh, there is a lot to be said for me you know for just uh, I want to say the word democratizing that is that the, is that the right word you know making sure that you know using technology if if kids are getting more access to technology than they are to books and then working out how we can make that about stories and how they can access you know the stories that are going to grab them in and make them readers for life Yes. Oh, you took me back. My local, was it a library? It was. a Yes. My local library that I think does not exist anymore. Of course, I remember, I remember it was like a really exciting day out that going and selecting books and the cover and the stamping of when you took them out. But I remember they also had this uh, wooden train set where the, the train things connected through magnets. You know, so it was also like spending hours, you know, you could get cassettes so I was very into I know audio books are making a comeback but this was you know when you had cassettes and I remember I would I would fall asleep listening to my favorite books as well as reading them um yeah oh lovely memories but I think it's really important isn't it that actually as libraries struggle with funding that how do we get books to people and how do we democratize that and I like that idea of saying actually it's not it's not a dichotomy of books or technology, but how do we make technology deliver the same kind of storytelling and reading? reading yeah, and if people need more experience, like, you know, if they need more experience in the book, then we've got the capability to do that now. You know, if if someone found reading hard, um, there's loads of things, isn't there? There's like, if you're, if you're uh, dyslexic and there's like ways to, to um, change the colour of the paper and printed in a certain way to make it easier to read and there's there's publishers who do that and they're doing an amazing job of doing that um but if you need more context or or you don't want anyone to see what you're reading because it's too simple and, and you're you're in a different then then technology be good because you can hide your cover you can you know you can that's your private place to read mm. um, there's there's loads of different reasons why they can they can both work like i'll always I read both. I read on. I read on my iPad and I read uh, physical books, and um, they go in in different ways. I think, and I also listen to audio books while I run. So, uh, like, I'm always thinking of what I'm going to listen to or how I'm going to take in stories. And I think that's we're all different, aren't we? Yeah, I'm still. I still refuse to read books on iPads or Kindles or whatever. To me, it's blasphemy. So I'm. I'm a stalwart kind of. But I do increasingly read articles and things like that online. So, um, yeah. Slippery um, slow. Before long, you'll have a Kindle. <laughs> I know. This is what I'm terrified of. You know, and I do know when people are like, oh, yeah, but, you know, it's so much easier going on holiday. And I'm the, with, you know, the, the suitcase of books thinking, do I want to leave these? Do I? <laughs> but no, I'm so far I've resisted. That does 
that is exactly it. I, I lived in, um, weirdly, for a period of time, I lived in Congo in, uh, when I, I was in Africa. And I took 25 books because there is nothing like the panic of, of having time to read and having nothing to read. Yeah. Like 25 paper books. And, and you know, like, I used to... I used to like just read them really slowly because I was like, this is all I've got to get through me for the next six months. You know, like it's a thing that, so now I can take 3000 books on the iPad and that, you know, like at least I never have that panic of running out of things to read. Yes. Although it does allow you though, when you're traveling or whatever, if you've got a book, it does allow you to start a conversation if you're doing a book swap. Yeah, true. That's why I'm hanging on to it. <laughs> with many of those in Congo, that's for sure. But yeah, <laughs> yeah it's pass, passing traveller. Um, yeah. So I really like what you're saying about stories as well. So Play Wealth Life, we make games. So obviously storytelling is really important. And we, we try to hold storytelling in mind in what we do. And I think it's partly because I think stories are really appealing. But I, I'm also interested you know, as a psychologist about how people use personal narratives to construct identities and make sense of experiences um what do you think is the potential or the power of storytelling and narratives and stories generally to change thinking and achieve social impact well I mean if you get them young enough and you know we start with we start at zero then you're keeping the mind as wide open as possible you know like the more the more influences of a diverse from a diverse spectrum the wider people's minds are and they're not hemmed in by like shoulds you know everything mm -hmm. still could and and that and that is the most incredible powerful thing but i certainly like have diversified my reading in the last definite well you know mostly since starting little box of books and recognizing that um it's really helpful if you're if you're encouraging your children to diversify their reading then it's really helpful for you to do the same and to uh, to be really mindful if you're just swallowing loads of books from a white middle class um author with you know about very similar lived experiences mm -hmm. and so the power in that is that just listening to how people you know like i mean there's been some incredible books that have really you know hit the hit the top of the charts recently like um is it girl woman other um i have it on my shelf but i have not read started it yet and queenie were two massive yeah, queenie was amazing yeah yeah but they're not from a perspective that i would be ever able to ever write from like it bears no resemblance to like you know their lives bear, bear little resemblance to like my kind of grown-up family structure and family life and um, and for that, I'm so grateful that that books give us these. Win they, it's called windows and mirrors. In uh, there's a famous um, research done by um, by an American. Um, that the, the big famous phrase is windows and mirrors. That books are windows and mirrors. So they not only reflect your experiences back to you, but they also give you the opportunity to look into the lives of people you would never have the opportunity to do that. And I think the way that you know the, the almost personal the very personal taking someone into and we've all got very individual experiences so if you can if you have the skills and storytelling talent to take somebody into your if you recognize the things that make your lived experiences unique and you can communicate them with an audience then we're on a you know like then you've got access to the whole world you get access to and that 
that goes for a much more richer living experience. You know, it gives you some insight into how other people live, how their families operate. Um, I'm consciously reading a lot of, uh, I read a lot of Muslim authors and try to read as much fiction as possible because I think particularly with the narrative around Muslims, the media narrative around Islam and Muslims is really damaging and really one-sided. You know, you look at like things like Homeland and you walk away and you let, the, the narrative is so like, th th there's barely any positive um, narratives around Muslims and and so like, you know, I've been seeking out love stories and just stories of families going about their business and it's transforming. Like it literally changes your worldview in like through the story. And, and I think that, you know, I think that's the most valuable thing any of us can do to, you know, have, an, have a worldview that can as closely, accurately reflect what the world really looks like. That's, I love that. And, and, and that sort of opening up of understanding and interest and curiosity about other and difference and things like that, rather than fear, you know, fear in the classic in-group, out-group, you know, resistance, which I think is, we see such a lot of at the moment in how divided the world is and all of that. I love that idea of actually books taking you into someone else's world to open, just to stimulate that curiosity to then actually ask questions. Ask questions, have a conversation with that person, find out, understand, connect rather than, uh, assume and and reject yeah interesting have you read I, I now want to send you a booklet have you read Americana and under oh, the like it's one of the most important books that I think I've ever like it really like that was where I started to understand I think she said something really like it was not the most profound thing in that book but it was something about never having to question why you've not been allowed in a in a club or in mm. in a why you've not considered like if you've never questioned why you weren't allowed in somewhere then you've got white privilege it was it's something like she obviously mm -hmm. worded much better than that and I think that was one of the points where I was like wow like this for me was you know it's life-changing isn't it like once you start looking at that and do you love that book I love it it was I think it was the fourth one I read of hers I love I just love her as an author I think I think it's under the yellow sun mm. moved me you know yeah and so but I think Americana in terms of like making me think differently you know it was a few years ago and I still remember exactly how I felt when I read it yeah, and yeah. it was like having my eyes opened to a world I'd never even knew existed let alone had thought about um and that's and that's incredible isn't it she she did a brilliant TED talk on the danger of a single story um and just highlighted if you only hear one story about people over and over again and you you take that as like what the universal truth is and that's not the universal truth which is why you need you need not you need lots of stories that's why people need like storytellers you know like there's a lot of discussion about publishing and how for so long all the decision makers have been white men and uh the authors um, or a lot of you know mainly white middle class and illustrators white middle class uh, mm -hmm. very few children's illustrators and there's a lot of talk about diverse in the output but so diversifying who's telling the stories and I think based on you know obviously George Floyd was murdered last year and there was a huge response right across the board to to his death and a lot of publishers 
while the conversation has been happening for 50 years, there was quite a few publishers decided to accelerate their diversity programs. Their, um, you know, there's been a lot more internships, um, kind of picking people up so that the, the entries to publishing are diversified and so more people can get in and tell their stories. So yeah, I think Penguin were one who their diversity t- targets were for 2025 and they brought them all forward to 2021. Mm-hmm. Like huge deliberate actions, which should have happened a long time ago, but I'm, I mean, it's incredible that it's happening now. Yeah. And I think it's one concern about, for me personally, about COVID and the long-term act- impact is I think COVID has exacerbated existing inequalities. And I yeah. worry that a lot of the stuff that was Un, sort of widely talked about last year will sort of disappear again under the the fallout of recovering from COVID. Um, but I hope not. And I think it's really interesting because I I've worked in various sort of aspects of media in my time, and um, it is really. And I think people don't appreciate how powerful the decision makers are, and the decisions that go on behind closed doors of what will be popular and what will be a trend, and also that actually getting into media as publishing broad term it often works on that internship basis you know are you willing to work for free or very low money which means actually the people it's often you have to be privileged to get your foot in the door in the first place or it's who you know and you know I think changing some of those kind of barriers to entry is really important um yeah because I remember working in telly when I first came to London and uh, I worked on the very first series of Big Brother in the UK, the 2021, uh, the tw- 2001. And, oh. and I got my job through The Guardian. So it was just a random application. I didn't know anyone. I'd applied through The Guardian and I got the job and I came down to London and I did that for the first time and I was paid for it. And then afterwards, I was told quite a lot that I would have to work for free. And it wasn't as um, prolific as it is now, as it became, I'm working for free. And I was like, I can't. I'm a Geordie living in Newcastle. I have nowhere to stay for free. I need to pay my bills. I mean, mum and dad are not going to find, they can't finance it. It's ridiculous. So I always had to get paid. And I think since then, jobs that were paid, like runner jobs, uh, runner researcher jobs, like I saw them being advertised for free as internships. Like it changed. And I was like, there is no way, like someone who didn't have access to money or funds, you know, I wouldn't have had a successful career in TV if it hadn't been for getting paid mm. what I was doing. Yeah, for what I was doing. Yeah, it is a kind of growing culture, isn't it? That, oh, yes, it's about the experience. Come have a good experience. It's like, actually, you should pay people as well. This <laughs> isn't going to buy you fish fingers, is it? Like, you know, it's not, you can't, it's just not going to work. Like, it just doesn't work like that. Um, I'm also aware that, you know, language in this sort of, when we're talking about inclusion and diversity is really important. Um, you know, and it's interesting for me, I worked with children with autism God, 15 odd years ago now, and it was schooled into us at the time we, we said children with autism and I work with dementia and it's very much people living with dementia as the terminology. But I know now that it's more about saying autistic children. So, you know, trends in language come and go, but I feel like language is something really important in this area. And it's something I, I worry about. I worry about getting it wrong because I think we do live in a society at the moment where you can get attacked quite easily online for saying something, you know, in the wrong way. How do you navigate that in your work, the sort of role of language and how do you manage that? By being authentically in it, I think. And I think that 
has given me more confidence than I would have had previously. Like, um, like I have to read loads and I read loads and I read from a wide range of people and I, I consume media from, you know, across the spectrum and including um, like from different racial, from different race cultures, you know, and I, and I, and I, and I maintain that because to have these conversations and to be able to sit comfortably and discuss some of these things while not, while being white and middle class is essentially the issue. Um, you have to be living it and you have to be in it. And, um, you know, like when it comes to neurodiversity, uh, more recently we've had a brilliant book by um, Al McNichol called A Kind of Spark. And she's autistic and she's written a book about um, an, an autistic girl who um, who goes on a campaign um, to change something in a village. And uh, it was just, I mean, for me, that was eye-opening in itself. I hadn't really thought about it. I hadn't thought about the language. And, you know, like, I'm still on a journey. Like, I'm still understanding. I'm still learning about, like, you know, disability is a huge area for us. And it's not, you know, it the the racial and cultural discussions have been quite accessible, quite, like, easy to access this year because there's been a lot of discussion um, and, you know, it's readily available. Conversations about disabilities are still lagging, you know, so we we are still trying to learn and still finding the people and the conversations we can have that make our, make, make that part of our business authentic as well and making sure that our representations in that sphere are real and true. So it's, it's a journey and it's a constant learning and also trying not to be scared about getting it wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, understanding where your place is, not taking anybody's oxygen on platform, trying to give us, trying to move over and give other people platforms wherever possible. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a constant journey of learning. And of course, I'm as susceptible to being cancelled as anyone else. And I'm well aware of that. And yeah, you just have to keep going in good faith and make great connections, make great friends, try, you know, find the people who are on your side online, all mm-hmm. of that stuff. And, you know, not weighed in thinking you know everything I think that's part of being white and middle class as well I think it's you know there's we're so often lauded for being the experts on things that um quite often we can go into spaces that aren't ours and that where we're not the experts and you know we have to learn to sit down and listen and learn I think Mm. and I think I think it's you know those are generally really great principles for in every area of life and I think where we've because we we co-design all our games with with it's generally young people and we're working on a augmented reality card game at the moment with children with chronic health conditions and disabilities and things and and a lot of what we've heard from them is that their disabilities are hidden you know they may not be visible and how hard that is and having to constantly explain or and it's been really eye-opening as you say that there's a whole sort of area around health or disabilities or hidden hidden diversity or um, hidden disability and I think mental health comes into that as well where that is just not part of the conversation and as you're saying you know finding representation around those topics is really hard and and I love that idea of you know and it's certainly something we've learned through co-design is actually we don't we don't know best we absolutely don't know best and 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 it's much better to ask and that always leads to a better idea or a better end product or a better game or a better end result um so for me personally i think i think yeah asking and and knowing you don't know it all can never go badly basically 
it's hard though it's really hard especially like you know you, you're taught to fake it until you make it in a lot of like industries and a lot of your mm-hmm. job and your profession and um you know you walk into meetings which are far above your seniority as you're getting up in your career and uh you know you, you you're programmed to always think you know best always sound like you know what's going on and actually sometimes it's the the you know, it's pushing your pride aside and acknowledging that if you're really going to make a difference, then it's not just going to be about you. And, you know, you need to share the stage and you need to uh, move aside and make sure that you're, yeah, that you're constantly learning. Well, I think that's really not, you know, that when you were talking just then, I was thinking about confidence. And actually, for, for me, I think as, as I've got older, confidence and self-esteem is about being comfortable not knowing and being comfortable step shutting up and letting other people talk and things like that and I think it's really important as conversations happen around developing confidence in young people that that some of that is part of it you know it's about being able to listen it's about being comfortable enough in your own skin to say I don't know tell me you know what do you think and and as you say I think that's a really interesting point that that's maybe not the way you're expected to behave in industry and in work you're you are expected to fake it to make it and, and where's that balance um and I think I think also the one question I've got for you is because um, I know I will get the ages wrong because it's many years ago that I studied this. I know there's some evidence that children don't see gender and things like that until it's six or seven. Um, yeah, probably around theory of mind. Um, have you had any criticisms around, oh, by focusing and having these conversations with children and focusing on d- diversity in books, you're actually ma- exacerbating the problem? Do you get kind of criticisms for that or or is it more about actually by by showing by representing society as it really is in books that avoids let problems later down the line just talk to me about any criticisms you've had i'll get loads of criticisms from people who uh who think uh um, the england's going to the dogs because uh there's no there's no english people in the books anymore you know you get the classic trolls who think English people are all white and uh all like look like Topsy and Tim and so we're always going to get that like we're getting with you know racist uh racist people ignorant people like just you know there's a whole collection of people who hate what we do and think it's unnecessary um and think we start conversations earlier than they're meant to like there's a there's a whole campaign called no outsiders in birmingham and a teacher set it up to um basically show children about the realm of relationships without you know in an age-appropriate way like you know the fact is is that some parents are in same-sex relationships and kids see that and know that and that exists and presenting that in without judgment without just just how life is has created a lot of like there's been huge protests and it's been quite problematic and you know like you're going to get that all the time but there's certain it's funny because um there's been a couple of documentaries no more boys and girls which was about um uh was about gendered classrooms and and um it's a brilliant documentary just about how to ungender those uh, classrooms and how you know it improves people's outcomes, kids' outcomes, and one of those, um, one of the findings in there was that before by seven, that you, your ideas about gender are set, mm-hmm. like so gender stereotyping, and you understand the role of men and women, and it's very hard to you know kind of undo some of that work that's been done already through just what you've seen and what you've experienced. And children's books and TV is part of that, a very huge part of that. 
Um, so that's why we go in a bit earlier. There's an organisation called Lift and Limits who are trying to ungender schools as well, and and that's and their findings are very similar to that. So for us, it's about it's 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 just about noticing the world. Like, am I being told? Am I telling my children what's real, or am I presenting a storybook version that has never existed, and that is actually quite damaging? And and I think that's where we position ourselves. And you know, like black parents don't have cho a choice about when they talk to their kids about racism white parents do like my child does not face racism and will never face racism and so it's my choice about when i bring that up but by the time you know he's seven now we've talked we talk about racism a lot but his his friends had to talk about it at four or five when they got abuse or when they you know when someone pointed out their skin color or how they were different in a room full of people or you know making assumptions about them based on their skin color and we have the privilege of not having to have those conversations so it's our responsibility to have them and books stimulate conversations about all kinds of things about all kinds of families about what people look like about you know how how we are as a jumble all necessary and all part of normal so yeah it's um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's my response to criticism about what we do. It's really powerful. I think the idea of actually marginalised groups do not get a choice about when they have those conversations. That's really powerful just as a statement. And yeah, and I think it's, it, it's nice to hear that you sound very grounded around, you know, what we're going to get criticisms because of the area we're working in. But, you know, it, it sounds doesn't feel like that at the time. <laughs> Okay, it comes across as incredibly grounded and resilient, so I take my hat off to you. But... <laughs> <laughs> if it comes in, like, you know, there's a whole process that you have to do to, to let it hurt you and then and then sit back and go, what do I intellectually know about this and wh where is this person coming from and where is their hurt from? And, you know, it's, it's a process, you know, it, you know, it's less, it hurts less than it did initially and it certainly hurts less when it comes from a place of ignorance and madness, but um yeah it's not uh it's not often yeah we're, we're used to it now well it's that thing isn't it that it says more about them than you and whenever people say that to me about things i think yeah intellectually i get that but that's not how it feels <laughs> so what's your hope or your vision for the future um for for our for what we're doing with little box of books like it's like i said in the beginning i want all kids to have access to a diverse bookshelf so to keep their minds wide open and you know to i don't think we're going to solve prejudice we're not going to solve racism by children's books but it it is an essential part in creating an equal and um accepting and you know kind of diverse flourishing society and i think it's an essential it's not going to solve the problem but if we get that sorted if, if that is just what happens then from there we've got a much better foundation to you know tackle society's ills um yeah amazing so so how can people listening support support you and support little box of books um so you can always support online we're on instagram uh little box of books or on Twitter, little bow books for some reason and Facebook. Um, so you can always join us there and join in the conversation and give us likes and follows and uh, share with audiences. You can of course buy books, um, buy boxes of books for presents, um, you know, for your own kids, for, you know, for whoever's in your life that could do with understanding the world a bit better, um, you know, balancing out some of the influences in their lives. 
um, schools always tell teachers about us, tell, let them know about diversifying bookshelves. We help, we help schools really easily. Like it, it's no extra time. In fact, it takes a job off their hands, if anything. So most schools absolutely love what we do and are searching for these books and just don't have the time or, or ability to find them. So, um, yeah, put us in contact with schools, but yeah, I mean, shout about it, share about it and make sure your kids have diverse bookshelves is, would be my, um, Amazing. And what what's your favourite book of the moment? And what book would you recommend around diversity at the moment? Oh, interesting. For children, I'm just looking what I have around around me now. What's really good? I've got this. Um, this book is the story of the Windrush, which um, is. It's a, it's like the old Ladybird style book from the eighties, and mm. it's a story about. Um, we've all heard of the Windrush generation, and and you know what happened with people being sent home back to where they hadn't ever lived or where people had lived a long time ago, and that just really gives a context of, you know, um, some of the story about black communities in the UK, and it just and it's it's a kids book, and it just you know it it sets the tone and, and helps kids understand a little bit about our diverse society. And I've got another one here, which I'm, um, which is going in our February boxes. Um, so that when this podcast goes out, it's called Kindness Makes Us Strong. And I'm reading it with my toddler because um, he doesn't know anything about kindness. And um, <laughs> it's got this kind of really diverse cast of characters. And um, I'm hoping just by reciting it to him that it'll just go in and then he'll know that sharing his crayons is a normal thing to do and, and a kind thing to do and that he will start doing that just because it's being said to him. <laughs> I won't ask rather than what's currently happening when asked to share crayons. Um, okay. nobody, nobody wants to see what's going on when that happens. <laughs> my, my, my always my top tip for, for adults, like my favourite author of all time is Judy Bloom because, um, and it's funny because it, it, thinking about Judy thinking about my old library reminds me of Judy Bloom because I got all her books out when my mom didn't know and found out everything about growing up. And she was like, she's such a trailblazer um, when it came to adult, young adult fiction, just writing about growing up in such an unflinching detailed, like parent horrifying way, which got most of us through puberty and that during the eighties. Like I, I feel like yeah, and it's funny that I've come full circle. She's my favourite author, trailblazing, still going today. And, uh, you know, a real, uh, you know, just has done amazing things for children through the books that she's written. Amazing. Thank you, Lindsay. Well, as someone who has spent, I believe, my entire life saying, how can I get paid to read books? I have to say I am deeply envious mm-hmm. of uh, the fact that you are required through your job to read lots of books, both children children's books as well as adult books so um yeah massive congratulations for for creating something so fantastic that also means you get to read books all day um so yeah it's just been an absolute pleasure talking with you today and um yeah you're just doing such incredible work I can't can't wait to help support you and and watch the amazing impact you have on society as a result of your work so thank you thank you for having me it's been lovely thank you Take care. So hi everyone, welcome to another installment of the Play Well for Life podcast. 
It is my absolute pleasure today to welcome Lindsay Pollard, founder and director of Little Box of Books, an inclusive children's book company. In a previous life, Lindsay was a TV director and an aid worker, and in her spare time, she likes to make Lego things with her children. So hi, Lindsay, it's so great to have you here. And um, I'm a massive fan of the work you're doing, so I can't wait to talk to you about it and share it with our listeners. So do you want to start by just telling me a little bit about your background and how it led you to come to set up Little Box of Books? Yes, thank you so much for having me. Hello. Um, yeah, we I set up Little Box of Books in 2018. I think it was uh, July 2018. It's hard to, it's hard to know where we are at the minute. <laughs> um, but uh, before that, I'd been... I'd, I'd worked in TV and I'd travelled the world, made a lot of daytime exciting programmes and had a lovely old time. And then I'd um, moved into aid work, wanting to, I think it was some misguided notion about wanting to um, save the world after having entertained the world and then saving the world. Um, so travelled a lot with that. Um, and then um, had my son, who's now seven, which kind of brought my aid work to um, quite a quick stop. <laughs> um, and I was uh, quickly, quite quickly a single man with him. And it was when, I suppose that was the time when I first went back to children's books. So mm -hmm. it'd been 34 years since I'd looked at a children's book, you know, and, and um, I started to read them with him and suddenly realised that the world had moved on, but children's books hadn't. Mm. So um, I was I was looking for books that would have um, single parent families in them because he very he was he was weird he very quickly seemed to realise that um, what we had wasn't normal in his eyes and I don't I, and I, I don't know where that came from he just very you know he would talk about normal families and he would talk about other families that weren't ours that you know fit with this idea that he had in his head isn't that weird from such mm. a um, was he in nursery like did it come from that or just yeah. general media and culture around sort of promoting that I think it must have been like all of those things I think we underestimate how many influences our kids have from a very young mm -hmm. age um, and it's something we are we try to be a, a, as aware of as possible um, all the little things that are planted in their heads from so many different places and uh, I couldn't find any books with uh, single parent families in. I went to Waterstones in Piccadilly in London and said, like, you know, do you have any books with single parent families? And they were they were like, no, we don't index like that. Like there's my mom is my single mom or my single mom, the superhero. But there's nothing where, you know, we wouldn't know if they're incidental to the storyline. You'd have to read every single book because we've got no way of knowing that. Mm -hmm. And as I looked into it, you know, I'm white, I'm middle class. I've been represented in books and media since, you know, since I was born. Um, but children's books were not represent are not representative racially, culturally. Um, there's a very narrow view of what's normal and what makes a children's book. So, mm. um, so that was yeah. I very quickly realised that as I started to read children's books again and, and recognise that people would need a service to show the whole diversity of our population through books, which is where the idea came from. Mm. Amazing and. I think it's a really interesting point. I remember being brought up on um, fairy tales from uh, sort of Russia and other sort of Eastern, more Eastern European countries 
And it was an intentional decision on my mum's part because in those stories, the woman or the princess or the daughter was going off on her own adventure and, you know, meeting the witches. And there was no kissing print, you know, sitting in towers waiting to be kissed by a prince. And I remember like, as I got a bit older and I realized that no one else to say my cat is called Baba Yaga and um, everyone goes, who's Baba Yaga? And I'm like, what? You don't know Baba Yaga. And it always really surprised me that, Obviously, as a young child, I didn't realize my mum had gone to great efforts to intentionally seek out books that had different types of narratives. And, even, and, and, and I do think that's had an impact on me and, and, and my peers, you know, who didn't have that potentially. And, and I think it, it's, it's interesting for me to hear that, you know, 30 odd years later, still you have to go to great efforts, it sounds like, to find anything against the heteronormative narrative or the standard narrative well and, and that's it and you know I look back at my childhood and it was incredibly progressive of your man to be to identify that and highlight it although the talk about diverse children's books has been going on for 50 years so um, there's, there has been a campaign to change them for a very long time but I grew up you know I wasn't I wasn't allowed to hear swearing in films at all but I was allowed to watch James Bond which <laughs> Which now I'm like, I find that decision unusual because, you know, James, like James Bond isn't going anywhere near my seven-year-old. Or, you know, like my, my boys will not be watching James Bond until they can understand that women aren't, aren't just there as ornaments or, you know, women don't have to be beautiful before anything else, you know. And so much damn, and I know that I... I remember saying that I wanted to be a nurse when I was younger instead of a doctor because I didn't believe women could be doctors. Mm -hmm. And I grew up with this idea. And my mom is very strong, very feisty, um, would and, and calls herself a feminist and, and is very much, you know, she, she strived for equality in the household, she was working. But for some reason, these, this influence was, you know, was just there, like mm -hmm. these what we watched on the TV, what we what we read in stories, and you know, like fairy tales were standard fare in our house. Mm. Um, and now I look back at, and and I can see, you know, not I can just see the way it formed my brain, formed my mind, and uh, you know, it's it's so important. And I'm so strict. My poor seven year old and my two year old as well, like the list of what goes off so quickly in our house is like is long not without a conversation we have a conversation about it but you know the chipmunks the other day like one of them fancied his French teacher like this is a kid's show and he fancied his French teacher and stalked the life out of her and I was just like I'm not having you this is not okay this is not a storyline you need to you it, until you can question that and understand it and and put it in context you're not it's not in our house so yeah I've, I'm quite like firm about trying to keep them you know um with minds as wide open as possible mm. and, yeah because I remember um, my friend telling me about I think it was the Barbie program and she was like I just it's so awful it's all about women being mean and stealing each other's boyfriends like you know and it's aimed at sort of four-year-olds and I think it's it's so and I see it, you know, I talk about James Bond. I remember the first time I sat in a James Bond movie thinking, I'm actually a bit uncomfortable with this. I'm not sure I like this. And, and I, I see, it's funny, I went on a bit of a, 
random nostalgic trip recently and was watching all these uh, TV shows from the 90s, like um, Dawson's Creek and stuff like that. And I was like, and Annie McBeal, it was very strange. I'm not sure what was going on with me. But um, I remember thinking, do you know what? This These seemed more progressive in many ways than the things I'm watching now on Netflix. You know, it feels like in many ways we've gone backwards and it's back to this some of the stereotypes about the... Uh, the jokey flaky man who's the hero and the idol because he's good looking and then you know the kind of uptight woman or just you know I just I'm so much more aware of it and I think it's really hard to see all the ways as you're saying that we're we're conditioned unconsciously and I love that idea that actually for you it's about having a conversation with your child and talking about why it's not a great idea to watch something and developing that questioning mind and that curiosity. That's just, yeah, that sounds really, really great. How does, how do they respond your kids to that? Well, my eldest, uh, my two year old just, uh, you know, at the minute his brain is full of, I don't know what they think about all day, but things that make him angry anyway. Um, but, uh, my seven year old definitely has grabbed the gender issue very strongly. And while he hates it at times, um he does talk to me about it so like I I often get him to read some of the books that I'm gonna uh, give to our subscribers and he'll come back and he'll be like great strong woman character um not brilliant for the boys who are all angry and or aggressive you know so he can come back and he knows what we're looking for in the books and then he can translate that into his situation so I mean who knows um, yeah, I'm the worst type of parent just going on saying, you know, have you thought about that? Why, you know, instead of letting him enjoy his, <laughs> enjoy the culture he's surrounded by and enjoy an art for art's sake. Um, but I do hope to make him questioning because I think um, more, more than ever before, our kids are surrounded by like media from all angles, you know, like there's, there's four-year-olds just watching kids YouTube all the time and then, mm. you know, and, and they need to be discerning. And if they're not given the tools to be discerning, then we, they, they are going to grow up with the same stereotypes that we're trying desperately to remove. It, it, it limits them. It limits everybody. They're so, it makes me so sad to think that kids just get told there's one way to be a girl, one way to be a boy. If you're black, you're always the sidekick or you have to be funny. You know, there's these like really strong tropes that left unquestioned will just, you know, are just perpetuated. So, you know. Mm -hmm. Really it's, it's a really important thing to do yeah and I think it's it's that thing it's recognizing that even if you are in the in the majority group you are it's problematic for everybody when there is yes. stereotypes and prejudice and actually all the evidence shows that diversity and diverse leads to diversity of thinking and that leads to better everything um and I think I think it's also really important what you're saying about actually just by developing that questioning of it, you start to see that it is culturally constructed. And that means our stereotypes and our culture are constructed and therefore are no better worse than another culture's constructed norms. They're just different. And it, I think it does start to allow that general respect. Can, it can lead to more respect and understanding of, of everybody and different cultures and different perspectives, which I think is really important when we're in a globalized world. Yeah, and, and I think, yeah, and it's, and it's definitely, you're right about it being for everybody because I think I've had a few people question uh, why 
why I do what I do, especially because I think the conversation about race um, is probably uh, one of the most prominent ones about what we do. And uh, I get people surprised that a white woman's working in this field. And, you know, we're very careful about how we speak in the platforms that we use and making sure that we're not taking the oxygen away from people who can speak about these, um, about race and culture from a lived experience. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, like my, um, my, it's, my son is, because um, we, we live in Brixton, my son goes to a school where he, at one point, I think he was one of three white kids in his class and the bookshelves did not reflect that. Wow. Um, so he was being told over and over again, he was, you know, he was going, he's having lessons um, about being anti-racist. You know, all of the house leaders are, I mean, admittedly American black people, um, which is something that we're looking to change as well. But um, he was hearing all of these stories about being anti-racist, um, always standing up for people and understanding that uh, difference is, you know, something to be um, accepted, understood and celebrated, you know, like all of those things. And yet being sent back to bookshelves full of um, stories where black people are entirely absent. Mm. White boys, white, usually white boys are the ones having the adventures and, uh, you know, being the most important person in any story. And, and it just doesn't match up. Like you can't, it's like role modeling, isn't it? You can't just tell people something. You can't just say to them, um, you know, be anti-racist, you know, make sure that your whole life is about unlearning your, your privilege and your, you know, you can't say that and then send them back to bookshelves, which are full of white kids going on adventures, being the detectives or, you know, all of the different things. And so it's, it's incredibly important for all children to understand um, what society looks like and why we are in the situation we are and why, you know, we've got like a the dominant white class, uh, white middle class being like the most important people in all of these positions, getting jobs, getting just privilege, isn't it? So interesting. Yeah, I mean, and and that's is exactly that, isn't it? That talking about something has to be followed by meaningful behaviour and representation and action in in society. So as you're saying, the bookshelves need to match what the message is that's being given. Um, yeah. And there's no Ofsted requirement at the moment. The, the, the recent framework, so, you know, Ofsted doing their school inspections and obviously that's all a bit um, up in the air at the minute, but like they released a new framework in last November, I think. And there's no requirement for diversity on the bookshelves. There's no requirement for a school to reflect the diversity of their school population on their bookshelves or the wider UK population, most importantly. Um, and so while there is a nod in that direction and um, you know extra marks to be given for people who are aware of and, and promote a, an atmosphere where diversity is accepted and celebrated, it's still not a requirement. And I think that's just a huge, huge blind spot for schools. Like you, you're, you, the influence, you, you're teaching them straight away about prejudice and, yeah. and that that that's got it that has to change yeah it's um I remember I was part of a book group and I remember someone suggesting actually why don't we specifically read LGBTQ literature and it was really interesting to read to intentionally seek out books that represented LGBTQ characters 
first of all, there were so many, but why are they not in the mainstream? You know, was the first question. And then just these, it, it really highlighted to me that unseen, that unseen kind of prejudice, basically, that actually most books that are on most reading lists are representing heterosexual relationships. And it was just, it was just really opened my eyes. And I think that's what I'm hearing from you as well. It's actually when you start to think about this and look around, you can't then unsee how, how um, insidious that sort of non-conscious bias is everywhere in society. Um, so tell us, tell us, cause I'm aware we're having a really interesting conversation and probably people are sitting there listening going, yes, but what is Little Box of Books? Tell us, tell us about Little Box of Books and how it works. So uh, we um, have, so we, we, there's two parts to what we do in it. There is um, a subscriber and gift boxes. So every month, um, normal people, everybody can choose to get a, a box of books for a not three, four to seven or an eight to 11 year old, or all of them if you want. Um, and in those bo- uh, boxes are two, three or four books, which reflect the diversity of our population. So all characters, not all of the characters in the books, but the um, the stories will uh, feature a diverse range of characters. So whether that's race, culture, family setup, um, sexuality, relationships, uh, all in these books so that it's normalized. So that diversity mm-hmm. is normalized to children. And then there's a few activities. So we, there's a little activity pack in there and some free gifts. And um, it's posted every month if you're a subscriber or you can get one-off gift boxes for birthdays, Christmas, whatever, christening, uh, bar mitzvahs, anything. Um, and yeah, it's, it's all about just uh, reflecting the diversity of our population in children's books and making sure. So we, we do prioritize um, black authors, black illustrators, uh, authors of color. Like we, we try and get, because as well, I think it's really important that own voices are heard. So mm-hmm. we do try and, um, and and make sure that like our diversity is right from like the making of the book, the writing of the book, you know, um, to encourage children to see the world through different perspectives and different eyes and understand that their version of normal isn't the only one, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, it's really simple stuff. It's like we've got, um, we've got some books for five to eight year olds, which are about Yasmin, who her family are Muslims. And um, so her mom gets up in the morning and puts on a sari and that's, Yasmin's normality and for an, for another kid who whose family aren't Muslims that's not their normality and they don't you know they might never have seen that or understood somebody celebrating Eid um or any of those things that just are just the differences between cultures and just having children understand them in ways that that aren't the ways that the media portray so mm-hmm. they have like you know, they understand about different cultures before you know and and it's the same for like we we um have characters with disabilities and it's it's having those conversations with children before you're in the supermarket pointing at someone asking you know asking awkward questions about why someone looks the way they look or you know um it's it's preparing the way for having those conversations and recognizing that everybody's different and everybody you know like there's we're all we all make up normal and that's and that's what's really important so um yeah so they're in a book and so we've got the, the family side of it so that's where those little boxes come in and then we do schools as well um so we do boxes of books 10 books up to 110 books for schools just boxes of diversity that reflect the population of the uk and we've done last year we raised fifty-seven thousand pound in a crowdfunder um 
and donated 10,000 books to schools all over the country. So, um, because our main mission is to make sure that all children have access to a diverse bookshelf. Mm. Um, Amazing. Such, such a, such a fantastic company and such a fantastic idea. Um, And I'm a massive book lover and an avid reader and my shelves are stuffed. My house is generally a stuff full of books. However, I am aware that lots of people say, oh, books have had their day and things like that. So tell us why you chose books as a medium. I think, well, I chose books as a medium because I don't think they'll ever have their day. Like, um, I think we have to look at access to books and make sure that's um, equal um, because obviously not all children have access to libraries of books at all, not, have children, not all children have parents who are big readers, but we do know that reading is the single biggest indicator of future academic success. So if a child is reading for pleasure, they are more likely to succeed right across the board in all subjects. So it's really important that all children read for pleasure. Um, and with that, you have to give children, you know, the kind of books that they might read. And, and before we've always gendered them, you know, we said, oh, this is a boy book or this is a girl book. But actually, it's not that. It's about, like, just interesting characterization or seeing people who look a bit like your family or, like, understanding a situation and being drawn into the book and, and, and non-fiction titles being available. So for that, um, while I concentrate at the moment on physical books and the, you know, the feeling of them and the smell of them and that, you know, like the whole world. Taking the smell of books. Oh yes. The smell of books. <laughs> Bookshops, you know exactly what I mean. Like it's, you know, that there's something, you know, I used to go to my local library from when I was um, about four or five, I think. And I used to take hordes of them home. And I remember how that felt going to the library. I loved it. And mm. um, so we concentrate on physical books, but you know, uh, there is a lot to be said for me, you know, for just, uh, I want to say the word democratize and that is that, the, is that the right word? You know, making sure that, you know, using technology, if, if kids are getting more access to technology than they are to books and then working out how we can make that about stories and how they can access, you know, the stories that are going to grab them in and make them readers for life. Mm. Yes. Oh, you took me back. My local, was it a library? It was, a, yes, my local library that I think does not exist anymore, of course. Um, I, rem- I remember it was like a really exciting day out, that going and selecting books and the cover and the stamping of when you took them out. But I remember they also had this uh, wooden train set where the, the train things connected through magnets. You know, so it was also like spending hours, you know, and you could get cassettes. So I was very into, I know audio books are making a comeback, but this was, you know, when you had cassettes and I remember I would, I would fall asleep listening to my favorite books as well as reading them. Um, yeah. Oh, lovely memories. But I think it's really important, isn't it? That actually as libraries struggle with funding, that how do we get books to people and how do we democratize that? And I like that idea of saying, actually, it's not it's not a dichotomy of books or technology, but how do we make technology deliver the same kind of storytelling and reading? reading yeah, contents. and if people need more experience, like, you know, if they need more experience in the book, then we've got the capability to do that now. You know, if if someone found reading hard, um, there's loads of things, isn't there? There's like, if you're, if you're uh, dyslexic and there's like ways to, to um, change the colour of the paper and 
printed in a certain way to make it easier to read. And there's, there's publishers who do that and they're doing an amazing job of doing that. Um, but if you need more context or or you don't want anyone to see what you're reading because it's too simple and, and you're, you're in a different, then then technology be good because you can hide your cover. You can, you know, you can, that's your private place to read. Mm. Um, there's, there's loads of different reasons why they can, they can both work. Like I'll always, I read both. I read on, I read on my iPad and I read uh, physical books and um, they go in in different ways, I think. And I also listen to audio books while I run. So uh, like, I'm always thinking of what I'm going to listen to or how I'm going to take in stories. And I think that's, we're all different, aren't we? Yeah. I'm still, I still refuse to read books on, uh, iPad or Kindles or whatever to me it's blasphemy so I'm I'm a stalwart kind of but I do increasingly read articles and things like that online so um yeah Um, before long you'll have a Kindle (laughs) I know this is what I'm terrified of you know and I do know when people like oh yeah but you know it's so much easier going on holiday and I'm the with you know the the suitcase of books thinking do I want to leave these do I (laughs) but no I'm so far I've resisted that does that is exactly it. I, I lived in, um, weirdly, for a period of time, I lived in Congo in, uh, when I, I was in Florida. And I took 25 books because there is nothing like the panic of, of having time to read and having nothing to read. Yeah. Like 25 paper books. And, and you know, like, I used to, I, I used to, like, just read them really slowly because I was like, this is all I've got to get through me for the next six months. You know, like, it's a thing that, so now... I can take 3,000 books on my iPad and that, you know, like at least I never have that panic of running out of things to read. Yes. Although it does allow you though, when you're traveling or whatever, if you've got a book, it does allow you to start a conversation if you're doing a book swap. Yeah, true. That's why I'm hanging on to it. <laughs> there were many of those in Congo, that's for sure. But yeah, <laughs> yes, pass, passing traveler. Um, yeah. So I really like what you're saying about stories as well. So play well for life we make games so obviously storytelling is really important and we we try to hold storytelling in mind in what we do and I think it's partly because I think stories are really appealing but I, I'm also interested you know, as a psychologist about how people use personal narratives to construct identities and make sense of experiences um, what do you think is the potential or the power of storytelling and narratives and stories generally to change thinking and achieve social impact well, I mean, if you get them young enough and, you know, we start with, we start at zero, then you're keeping the mind as wide open as possible. You know, like the more, the more influences of a, of a diverse, from a diverse spectrum, the wider people's minds are and they're not hemmed in by like shoulds, you know, everything mm-hmm. still could. And, and that, and that is the most incredible, powerful thing. But I certainly like have diversified my reading in the last definite, well, you know, mostly since starting Little Box of Books and recognising that um, you can't, it's really helpful if you're, if you're encouraging your children to diversify their reading, then it's really helpful for you to do the same and to, uh, to be really mindful if you're just swallowing loads of books from a white middle class um, author with you know like very similar lived experiences Mm. and so the power in that is that just 
listening to how people, you know, like, I mean, there's been some incredible books that have really, you know, hit the hit the top of the charts recently, like, um, is it Girl, w Woman, Other? Um, I have and, it on my shelf, but I have not read, started it yet. And Queenie were two massive. <laughs> Queenie was amazing, yeah. Yeah, but then not from a perspective that I would be ever able to ever write from. Like, it bears no resemblance to, like, you know, their lives bear, bear little resemblance to like my kind of grown up family structure and family life. And, um, and for that, I'm so grateful that, that books give us these, win they, it's called Windows and Mirrors in, uh, there's a famous, um, there's a famous uh, research done by, um, by an American, um, I can't remember who they were, but the, the, the big famous phrase is Windows and Mirrors, that books are Windows and Mirrors, so they not only reflect your experiences back to you, but they also give you the opportunity to look into the lives of people you would never have the opportunity to do that. And I think the way that, you know, the, the almost personal, the very personal taking someone into, and we've all got very individual experiences. So if you can, if you have the skills and storytelling talent to take somebody into your if you recognize the things that make your lived experiences unique and you can communicate them with an audience, then we're on a, you know, like then you've got access to the whole world, you get access to, and that, that goes for a much more richer living experience. You know, it gives you some insight into how other people live, how their families operate. Um, I'm consciously reading a lot of, uh, I read a lot of Muslim authors and try to read as much fiction as possible because I think particularly with the narrative around Muslims, the media narrative around Islam and Muslims is really damaging and really one-sided. You know, you look at like things like Homeland and you walk away and you let, the, the narrative is so like, th th there's barely any positive um, narratives around Muslims. And, and so like, you know, I've been seeking out love stories and, um, just stories of families going about their business and it's it's transforming like it literally changes your worldview in like through the story and and i think that you know i think that's the most valuable thing any of us can do to you know have a have a worldview that can as closely accurately reflect what the world really looks like mm. that's i love that and 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 that sort of opening up of understanding an interest and curiosity about other and difference and things like that, rather than fear, you know, fear in the classic in-group, out-group, you know, resistance, which I think is, we see such a lot of at the moment in how divided the world is and all of that. I love that idea of actually books taking you into someone else's world to open, just to stimulate that curiosity to then actually ask questions, ask questions, have a conversation with that person, try, find out, understand, connect, rather than uh, assume and, and reject. Um, yeah. Interesting. Have you read, I, I now want to send you a booklet. Have you read Americana? And under oh, the like It's one of the most important books that I think I've ever, like it really like, that was where I started to understand. I think she said something really like, it was not the most profound thing in that book, but it was something about never having to question why you've not been allowed in a, in a club or in, mm. in a, why you've not considered, like if you've never questioned why you weren't allowed in somewhere, then you've got white privilege. It was, it's something like she obviously mm. worded much better than that. And I think that was one of the points where I was like, wow, like this for me was, you know, it's life changing, isn't it? Like once you start looking at that. 
And do you love that book? I love it. It was, I think it was the fourth one I read of hers. I love, I just love her as an author. I think, I think it's Under the Yellow Sun mm. moved me, you know, in, yeah. And so, but I think Americana in terms of like making me think differently, you know, it was a few years ago and I still remember exactly how I felt when I read it. Mm-hmm. And, and it was like having my eyes opened to a world I'd never even knew existed, let alone had thought about. Um, and that's and that's incredible, isn't it? She she did a brilliant TED talk on the danger of a single story, um, and just highlighted if you only hear one story about people over and over again, and you you take that as like what the universal truth is, and that's not the universal truth, which is why you need you need not you need lots of stories. That's why people need like storytellers you know like there's a lot of discussion about publishing and how for so long all the decision makers have been white men and uh the authors um are a lot of you know mainly white middle class and illustrators white middle class uh, mm-hmm. very few children's illustrators and there's a lot of talk about diverse in the output but so diversifying who's telling the stories and i think based on you know obviously george floyd was murdered last year and there was a huge response right across the board to to his death and a lot of publishers while the conversation's been happening for 50 years there was quite a few publishers decided to accelerate their diversity programs their um you know there, there's been a lot more internships um kind of picking people up so that the, the entries to publishing are diversified and so more people can get in and tell their stories. So yeah, I think Penguin were one who their diversity t- targets were for 2025 and they brought them all forward to 2021. Mm. Like huge deliberate actions, which should have happened a long time ago, but I'm, I mean, it's incredible that it's happening now. Yeah. And I think it's one concern about, for me personally, about COVID and the long-term act impact is I think COVID has exacerbated existing inequalities and I worry that a lot of the stuff that was sort of widely talked about last year will sort of disappear again under the the fallout of recovering from COVID Um, but I hope not and I think think it's really interesting because I I've worked in various sort of aspects of media in my time and um, it is really and I think people don't appreciate how powerful the decision makers are and the decisions that go on behind closed doors of what will be popular and what will be a trend and also that actually getting into media as publishing broad term it often works on that internship basis you know are you willing to work for free or very low money which means actually the people it's often you have to be privileged to get your foot in the door in the first place or it's who you know and you know I think changing some of those kind of barriers to entry is really important um yeah because I remember working in telly when I first came to London and uh, I worked on the very first series of Big Brother in the UK the 2021 uh, the 2001 and um, and I got my job through the Guardian so it was just a random application I didn't know anyone I'd applied through the Guardian and I got the job and I came down to London and I did that for the first time and I was paid for it. And then afterwards, I was told quite a lot that I would have to work for free. And it wasn't as um, prolific as it is now, as it became, I'm working for free. And I was like, I can't, 
I'm a Geordie living in Newcastle. I have nowhere to stay for free. I need to pay my bills. I mean, mum and dad are not going to find, they can't finance it. It's ridiculous. So I always had to get paid. And I think since then, jobs that were paid, like runner jobs, uh, runner researcher jobs, like I saw them being advertised for free as internships. Like it changed. And I was like, there is no way like someone um, who didn't have access to money or funds, you know, I wouldn't have had a successful career in TV if it hadn't been for getting paid mm. what I was doing. Yeah, for what I was doing. Yeah, it is a kind of growing culture, isn't it? That, oh, yes, it's about the experience. Come have a good experience. It's like, actually, you should pay people as well. Experience <laughs> isn't going to buy you fish fingers, is it? Like, you know, it's not, you can't, it's just not going to work. Like, it just doesn't work like that. Um, I'm also aware that, you know, language in this sort of, when we're talking about inclusion and diversity is really important. Um, you know, and it's interesting for me, I worked with children with autism God, 15 odd years ago now, and it was schooled into us at the time we, we said children with autism and I work with dementia and it's very much people living with dementia as the terminology, but I know now that it's more about saying autistic children. So, you know, trends in language come and go, but I feel like language is something really important in this area. And it's something I, I worry about. I worry about getting it wrong because I think we do live in a society at the moment where you can get attacked quite easily online for saying something, you know, in the wrong way. How do you navigate that in your work, the sort of role of language and how do you manage that? By being authentically in it, I think. And I think that has given me more confidence than I would have had previously. Like, um, like I have to read loads and I read loads and I read from a wide range of people and I, I consume media from, you know, across the spectrum and including um, like from different racial, from different race cultures, you know, and I, and, I, and, I, and I maintain that because to have these conversations and to be able to um, sit comfortably and discuss some of these things while not, while being white and middle class is essentially the issue. Um, you have to be living it and you have to be in it. And, um, you know, like when it comes to neurodiversity, uh, more recently we've had a brilliant book by um, Al McNichol called A Kind of Spark. And she's autistic and she's written a book about, um, uh, about uh, like, an, an autistic girl who um, who goes on a campaign um, to change something in a village. And uh, it was just, I mean, for me, that was eye-opening in itself. I hadn't really thought about it. I hadn't thought about the language. And, you know, like, I'm still on a journey. Like, I'm still understanding. I'm still learning about, like, you know, disability is a huge area for us. And it's not, you know, it, the, the racial and cultural discussions have been quite accessible, quite, like, easy to access this year because there's been a lot of discussion. Um, and you know it's readily available conversations about disabilities are still lagging you know so we we are still trying to learn and still finding the people and the conversations we can have that make our make make that part of our business authentic as well and making sure that our representations in that sphere are real and true so it's it's a journey and it's a constant learning and also trying not to be scared about getting it wrong mm-hmm. um understanding where your place is not taking anybody's oxygen on a platform trying to give us trying to move over and give other people platforms wherever possible um yeah i mean it's it's a constant journey of learning and of course i'm as susceptible 
to being cancelled as anyone else and I'm well aware of that and um yeah you just have to keep going in good faith and make great connections make great friends try you know find the people who are on your side online mm-hmm. all of that stuff and you know not weighed in thinking you know everything I think that's part of being white and middle class as well I think as you know there's we're so often lauded for being the experts on things that um quite often we can go into spaces that aren't ours and that where we're not the experts and you know we have to learn to sit down and listen and learn I think Mm. and I think I think it's you know those are generally really great principles for in every area of life and I think where we've really because we we co-design all our games with with it's generally young people and we're working on a augmented reality card game at the moment with children with chronic health conditions and disabilities and things And, and a lot of what we've heard from them is that their disabilities are hidden you know they may not be visible and how hard that is and having to constantly explain or and it's been really eye-opening as you say that there's a whole sort of area around health or disabilities or hidden hidden diversity or um, hidden disability and I think mental health comes into that as well where that is just not part of the conversation and as you're saying you know finding representation around those topics is really hard and and I love that idea of you know and it's certainly something we've learned through co-design is actually we don't we don't know best we absolutely don't know best and 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 it's much better to ask and that always leads to a better idea or a better end product or a better game or a better end result um so for me personally I think I think yeah asking and, and knowing you don't know it all yeah can never go badly basically it's hard though it's really hard especially like you know you're taught to fake it until you make it in a lot of like industries and a lot of your Mm -hmm. job and your profession and um you know you walk into meetings which are far above your seniority as you're getting up in your career and uh you know you're programmed to always think you know best always sound like you know what's going on and actually sometimes it's the the you know, it's pushing your pride aside and acknowledging that if you're really going to make a difference, then it's not just going to be about you. And, you know, you need to share the stage and you need to uh, move aside and make sure that you're, yeah, that you're constantly learning. Well, I think that's really not, you know, that when you were talking just then, I was thinking about confidence. And actually, for, for me, I think as, as I've got older, confidence and self-esteem is about being comfortable not knowing and being comfortable step, yeah. you know, shutting up and letting other people talk and things like that. And I think it's really important as conversations happen around com- developing confidence in young people that, that some of that is part of it. You know, it's about being able to listen. It's about being comfortable enough in your own skin to say, I don't know, tell me, you know, tell, what do you think? And, and as you say, I think that's a really interesting point that that's maybe not the way you're expected to behave in industry and in work you're you are expected to fake it to make it and, and where's that balance um and I think I think also the one question I've got for you is um because I know I will get the ages wrong because it's many years ago that I studied this I know there's some evidence that children don't see gender and things like that until it's six or seven um yeah probably around theory of mind um 
have you had any criticisms around oh by focusing and having these conversations with children and focusing on diversity in books you're actually exacerbating the problem do you get kind of criticisms for that or or is it more about actually by by showing by representing society as it really is in books that avoids problems later down the line just talk to me about any criticisms you've had Oh, I'll get loads of criticisms from people who uh, who think uh, um, the England's going to the dogs because uh, there's no there's no English people in the books anymore. You know, you get the classic trolls who think English people are all white and uh, all like look like Topsy and Tim, and so we're always going to get that. Like we're getting, we're, you know, racist. Uh, racist people, ignorant people, like just, you know, there's a whole collection of people who hate what we do and think it's unnecessary um, and think we start conversations earlier than they're meant to. Like there's a there's a whole campaign called No Outsiders in Birmingham and a teacher set it up to um, basically show children about the realm of relationships without, you know, in an age appropriate way. Like, you know, the fact is, is that some parents are in same sex relationships and kids see that and know that and that exists and presenting that in without judgment without just just how life is has created a lot of like there's been huge protests and it's been quite problematic and you know you, like you're going to get that all the time um but there's certain it, it's funny because um there's been a couple of documentaries no more boys and girls which was about um uh, it was about gendered classrooms and and um, it's a brilliant documentary just about how to ungender those uh, classrooms and how you know it improves people's outcomes kids outcomes and one of those um, one of the findings in there was that before by seven that you, your ideas about gender are set like mm-hmm. so gender stereotyping and you understand the role of men and women and it's very hard to you know kind of undo some of that work that's been done already through just what you've seen and what you've experienced and children's books and TV is part of that, a very huge part of that. And um, so that's why we go in a bit earlier. There's an organization called Lift and Limits who are trying to ungender schools as well. And, and that's and their findings are very similar to that. So um, for us, it's about it's 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 just about noticing the world. Like, am I being told, am I telling my children what's real, or am I presenting a storybook version that has never existed? And that is actually quite damaging. And, and I think that's where we position ourselves. And, you know, like black parents don't have cho- a choice about when they talk to their kids about racism. White parents do. Like my child does not face racism and will never face racism. And so it's my choice about when I bring that up. But by the time, you know, he's seven now, we've talked, we talk about racism a lot, but his, his friends, had to talk about it at four or five when they got abuse or when they, you know when someone pointed out their skin color or how they were different in a room full of people or you know making assumptions about them based on their skin color and we have the privilege of not having to have those conversations so it's our responsibility to have them and books stimulate conversations about all kinds of things about all kinds of families about what people look like about you know how how we are as a jumble all necessary and all part of normal so yeah it's um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's my response to criticism about what we do. It's really powerful. I think the idea of actually marginalised groups do not get a choice about when they have those conversations. That's really powerful, just as a statement. Um, and yeah, and I think it's, it, 
it's nice to hear that you sound very grounded around, you know, what we're going to get criticisms because of the area we're working in, but you know, it, it sounds doesn't feel like that at the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It comes across as incredibly grounded and resilient. So take my hat off to you. <laughs> when it, if it comes in, like, you know, there's a whole process that you have to do to, to let it hurt you. And then, and then sit back and go, what do I intellectually know about this? And wh- where's this person coming from? And where is their hurt from? And, you know, pro- it's, it's a process, you know, it, you know, it's less, it hurts less than it did initially. And it certainly hurts less when it comes from a place of ignorance and madness. But um, yeah, it's not, uh, it's not often, yeah, we, we're used to it now. Well, it's that thing, isn't it? That it says more about them than you. And whenever people say that to me about things, I think, yeah, intellectually, I get that, but that's not how it feels. <laughs> So what's your hope or your vision for the future? Um, for, for, our, for what we're doing with Little Box of Books, like, it's like I said in the beginning, I want all kids to have access to a diverse bookshelf so to keep their minds wide open and, you know, to... I don't think we're going to solve prejudice. We're not going to solve racism by children's books, but it, it is an essential part in creating an equal and... Um, accepting and you know kind of diverse flourishing society and I think it's an essential it's not going to solve the problem but if we get that sorted if, if that is just what happens then from there we've got a much better foundation to you know tackle society's ills um yeah amazing so so how can people listening support support you and support little box of books um so you can always support online we're on instagram at uh, little box of books or on Twitter, little bow books for some reason and Facebook. Um, so you can always join us there and join in the conversation and give us likes and follows and uh, share with audiences. Can of course buy books, um, buy boxes of books for presents, um, you know, for your own kids, for, you know, for whoever's in your life that could do with understanding the world a bit better, um, you know, balancing out some of the influences in their lives. And um, schools always tell teachers about us, tell, let them know about diversifying bookshelves we help we help schools really easily like it it's no extra time in fact it takes a job off their hands if anything so most schools absolutely love what we do and are searching for these books and just don't have the time or or ability to find them so um yeah put us in contact with schools but yeah i mean shout about it share about it and make sure your kids have diverse bookshelves is, would be my um, amazing and what what's your favorite book of the moment and what book would you recommend around diversity at the moment? Oh, interesting. For children, I'm just looking what I have around, around me now. What's really good? I've got this. Um, this book is The Story of the Windrush, which um, is, it's, a, it's like the old Ladybird style book from the 80s. And mm. it's story about um we've all heard of the Windrush generation and and you know what happened with people being sent home back to where they hadn't ever lived or where people had lived a long time ago and that just really gives a context of you know um some of the story about black communities in the UK and it just and it's it's a kids book and it just you know it it sets the tone and, and helps kids understand a little bit about our diverse society and I've got another one here which I'm um which is going in our February boxes um, so that when this podcast goes out, it's called Kindness 
makes us strong. And I'm reading it with my toddler because um, he doesn't know anything about kindness. And um, it's got a really diverse cast of characters. And um, I'm hoping just by reciting it to him that he'll just go in and then he'll know that sharing his crayons is a normal thing to do and, and a kind thing to do and that he will start doing that just because it's being said to him. <laughs> I won't ask rather than what's currently happening when asked to share crayons. <laughs> okay. nobody, nobody wants to see what's going on when that happens. <laughs> my, 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 always my top tip for, for adults, like my favourite author of all time is Judy Bloom because, um, and it's funny because it, it, thinking about Judy thinking about my old library reminds me of Judy Bloom because I got all her books out when my mom didn't know and found out everything about growing up. And she was like, she's such a trailblazer um, when it came to adult, young adult fiction, just writing about growing up in such an unflinching, detailed, like parent horrifying way, which got most of us through puberty and that during the 80s. Like, I, I feel like yeah, and it's funny that I've come full circle. She's my favourite author, Trailblazing, still going today. And, uh, you know, a real, uh, you know, just has done amazing things for children through the books that she's written. Amazing. Thank you, Lindsay. Well, as someone who has spent, I believe, my entire life saying, how can I get paid to read books? I have to say I am deeply envious mm -hmm. of... Uh, the fact that you are required through your job to read lots of books, both children, children's books as well as adult books. So, um, yeah, massive congratulations for, for creating something so fantastic that also means you get to read books all day. Um, so, yeah, it's just been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. And, um, yeah, you're just doing such incredible work. I can't, can't wait to help support you and and watch the amazing impact you have on society as a result of your work so thank you thank you for having me it's been lovely thank you take care thanks for listening to find out more about our products and how to get involved in this podcast please visit playwellforlife.com